So, Zora Neale Hurston's essay, Characteristics of Negro Expression, is one of my favorite essays uh, to read, to write about, and to teach. And a lot of why I like the essay so much has to do with its expansiveness as commentary on black life and cultural formation. What I mean by black life is the sense in which Hurston is trying to access in her the story she tells in the essay, access an essential core of black life that goes beyond um, you know platitudes that get to something depth, some get to something that's at some depth, but also something that from that depth has an expansive explanatory power. And that expansive explanatory power is really about the ability to make a statement about, as she, the title of the essay has it, characteristics of Negro expression. Give, give, a, give an account of those characteristics that explain many facets of African-American life. Um, in particular, as I said, cultural formation. And what I mean by cultural formation is the making of everything that we call culture, right? Dance, uh, cuisine, religion, music, uh, language, painting, poetry, novels, right? All of what we could also call expressive life. So in trying to think about and talk about black expressive life, uh, Herson is able to generate something that is, as I said, expansive. That is, it tells a story that goes way back in time, um, that goes back to the origins of the black Americas, that go to the origins of life in the United States for African Americans, right? The slave trade, uh, the Middle Passage, plantation slavery, emancipation, and its aftermath. And through these different phases of one continuous experience of anti-blackness, right? That's what that is. It's one continuous experience of anti-blackness that, that, you know, we don't live outside of that horizon, but it has different iterations. What you have generated is a sense of life and a sense of, of being in the world that is fundamentally different than the dominant class, you know, what we would call white people, right? So we shouldn't be surprised that in talking about characteristics of Negro expression, Hurston is not doing something like aspects of, of, of black expressive life and culture that are very similar to, but slightly different than, than those of white Americans. Right. Rather, she's really talking about a distinctiveness that is comprehensive, that uh, expands and, and addresses the fullness of how we think about African-American life as constituted by itself, not as something always and constantly laboring under the white gaze. This is something that we've talked about uh, multiple times in the class and in these process pieces. It's not simply that, you know, that, that black life takes place under the white gaze. It's also true and perhaps uh, more important, I think absolutely more important if we're talking about culture and the meaning of existence, meaning of life, it's really critical that we understand, explore, 
and define contours of black life as lived by black people in relation to other black people. That's really where the characteristics of Negro expression essay begins and ends. Trying to talk about those features of being black in an anti-black world, but also being black in relation to other black people in the distinctiveness of that experience, its aftermath and how people live. Now I say how people live because I think this is the critical thing that in regimes of anti-blackness, that is if we simply think of black life as lived under the, 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 the control, the guise, um, the violence of, of white people, that is black people living in an interracial world, there is a real question, how much can we talk about black life as actually life? And how much do we have to talk about black life as a form of death, right? what uh, the, the sociologist uh, Orlando Patterson called social death, that sense in which at the level of the social, one is already dead rather than living a fullness of a social life that's in integrated into politics and culture in the broadest national or regional sense. So when we think about black life in the context of interracial worlds, that sense of being dead and being alive at the same time is a constant. It's a shadow that really, um, you know, is cast over all aspects of being black in an anti-black world. But Hurston, and this is what I like so much about the essay, is I think really talking about something different. Obviously, one cannot think about and talk about black life in the United States without thinking about the origins uh, through the origins of that life uh, through all the trials of violence across generations and generations and generations across centuries, right? So there is inevitably and, and importantly a link between characteristics of Negro expression, as she puts it, and that history of oppression, that history of suffering and resistance. But we also have to understand to, under, to get at what Hurston's talking about in the essay, we also have to understand that African Americans have not simply lived and survived anti-black racism, but also African Americans have lived and thrived in a world that doesn't want them. How does that happen? Well, this is where cultural formation is so important. Because what cultural formation does is for a dominant class, it solidifies certain national characteristics, right? Um, you can think of, you know, why certain uh, cultural features of, of, of any nation are so important, whether it's, you know, uh, real possessiveness and preciousness around food, uh, around national religions, uh, even, of course, uh, for racially uh, obsessed nations, the purity of the people and this kind of talk. When, you talk. when you're thinking about culture at that national level, it's about solidifying the people of the whole nation. But when one turns, as Hurston does, to the, to the expressive and cultural life of African Americans, we can't think of the relationship of cultural formation to a national body no matter how much, as it's always worth pointing out, the entirety of American culture 
is derived from African Americans. We cannot even begin to imagine African American or American life without African American culture. They are one and the same. However, African American cultural production is not the same as a national character, right? It is rather always something produced from the underground, always something produced from the margins of society that through the sheer force of expressive life, the sheer force of, 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 the, of cultural expression has made its way into national consciousness to dominate what we would call our national culture, right? In that way, our, quote, national culture is simply a borrowed culture at the national level of the cultural, of, culture of the marginalized. That itself is an interesting uh, other kind of conversation. But I say all this to try to define or give some strict delineation of the kinds of things Hurston is talking about. We cannot just simply say, you know, Hurston is, is talking about African-American life and leave it at that. One has to understand the context of what that life is to which that life is related. Right? What is the context to which African-American life is related? To white American life or to black American life or to the interracial space that is shared between white and black people? And it's emphatically, I think, clear that Hurston is talking about black life in relation to itself in the ways that African-Americans have thrived and lived full lives on the margins of a society or outside or in the limit space between the dominant culture, which is oppressive and obsessed with the death and suffering of black people and what it means to go home, right? what it means to retreat to a home, to a neighborhood, to a community, to a family, to a place where you aren't oppressed because of your racial difference. And out of that world, that relationship that black people have with one another we get some of the major features of what Hurston is talking about in the characteristics essay. I'm really interested in particular, and so this is really uh, you know the main comment I want to make about the essay, is her interest in angularity and adornment. Those two things I find incredibly interesting. We start with the latter with adornment. This is this really interesting uh, moment for me where Hurston is talking about, you know, um, what it means to be a, a people who have a decorative approach to life, right? And so it's not simply, you know, um, you know, a, a, a different way of flavoring food, which is itself an adornment, right? That spicing food, uh, herbs and spices are ways of, of, of adorning a given vegetable or, or piece of uh, animal, meat, uh, animal meat. It's that. It's vocal flourishing as a characteristic of major musical performance genre, whether it's gospel or soul music or um, blues or jazz or hip-hop. Right, the singularity of the voice, its ability to literally adorn melody and rhythm with the uniqueness of its sound, these are moments of adornment that are really important and are actually quite distinctive about African-American cultural formation. 
And adornment, I think, has really important anthropological origins, right? That it's linked to um, the way life was lived by ne of necessity on the plantation. That is one, you know, in, in the, uh, enslaved communities did not sort of grow and cultivate their own food. What instead they ate was whatever was left over from the white people on the plantation, right? Whether that was the plantation owners or other workers or extended family members and community members. That leftover food, right, those items that the white people didn't want, right, put special demands on the way... Um, the way African-Americans constructed cuisine. Because you couldn't simply say, well, this is the sort of top, you know, quality items in this bushel of food items, right? Rather, it's, you know, this is what's left over. And so how does one adorn the food so that it doesn't become simply something consumed in order uh, to give sustenance to the body and live, but instead, like all food, right? What does it mean to create that food? However much it is from the abject bottom of of the well of the of the available food items, how does one make that a cuisine, right? Something that people enjoy, something that people anticipate, something that people want, right? As part of their everyday lives, as part of a tradition. And so there are so many aspects of, say, cuisine or music in African-American life that is traced back to this moment. The limited availability, the lack of agency or choice in what one has, you know, to make music, to, to make art, to make language, right, to make poetry, sto tell stories, right, that would later become short stories and novels, um, and to compose musical pieces that become then traditional songs. One do, when one doesn't choose those things, there are sort of two forks in the road. One is to sort of follow the road of abjection and say, you know, there's nothing to be done with this. This is terrible quality. It's not of our choice. And there's really nothing to be done. And that's emphatically not what has happened historically. Rather, there is the, what she calls adornment. Right, taking what may be plain and actually quite ugly and unpleasant and having an adorning approach, a decorative approach to every aspect of that thing such that it becomes something desirable, something pleasurable, something worthy of, in the case of music, a tradition, in the case of, of cuisine, right, a sense of a people's food, and so on and so forth. And this notion of angularity is really interesting to me. You know, I think when we think of angularity, you know, she's referring to things like, you know, the way people walk, the way people dance. And so we watched, you know, a, a dance piece in the in class that I thought was really interesting. I mean, it's a short piece that has a, a kind of uh, physical um, dynamic to it, right? A crunk piece um, uh, from a television show. It has a, a kind of expressive intensity that is captivating. But what you see in it is how it's making art out of unexpected and unusual angles. And that sense of unusual angles making art is, again, this way of resisting a dominant culture in which you can either assimilate and imitate but always fall short, right? What it would mean, for example, to 
constrict all dance to ballet, right? A European art form and to imitate European art, right? You either can do that or you can do what's happened in the history of African-American expressive life, which is to introduce this, you know, uh, expressive strategy, I guess you could say, expressive strategy of angularity, which is to break up the linearity of things, to break up the uniformity and familiarity of physical movement in order to move differently. And in that moving differently, you carve out something distinctive in the world that then is as something carved out and distinctive about the world is something that you possess as a person as a community and then across generations as a cultural form. And so when you think about musical and uh, dance pieces that are part of the African-American tradition, you can see angularity and adornment in all of it. It is part of what makes it stand out as different than white musical traditions in the U.S to the extent that white musical traditions do not imitate African-American, right? That's always a question that has always happened and always will, right? Whether you want to call that cultural exchange, sharing culture or cultural exploitation, um, that's a debate and it's kind of a case by case or maybe a generalized thing, you know, that's a whole other discussion. But the distinctiveness of what she calls Negro expression Right, as angularity and adornment ends up structuring entire worlds, making entire traditions of music, of food, of religion, of, 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 of fashion, of painting, of poetry, the way of moving between words and sounds and movements in, in unexpected moments of, of beat. Right? moving away from melody and toward rhythm and the way rhythm breaks up in these interesting ways to emphasize the angularity of sound, the way sound makes a right turn, the way it makes a, uh, uh, you know, uh, the way it curves, the way it juts at unexpected angles. You know, these are aspects of improvisational jazz, of vocal runs, right, of certain forms of painting and what people have called folk art or outsider art, taking found objects and making something out of them that's beautiful. These are strategies not just of people, but these are strategies that have defined African-American life from the very beginning, from the moment of the Middle Passage and plantation slavery, where those relationships to African culture were severed and uh, across even just one or two generations had all but faded. And what takes its place is not a sense of survival, but a sense of making a life and making an expressive culture that then creates a world. It creates a world in which black people have their own relationship to one another that is mediated or carried by these modes of expression that are distinctive to the people expressing themselves. That is a form of liberation. That is a radical strategy of resistance, but it's a radical strategy of resistance, not because it directly confronts white people in interracial space, but it is resistance because it refuses to concede the very idea of living in the world to white people, to the world they've constructed, to the world that doesn't want black people. And that radical resistance moment is when 
when when communities say we're going to generate our own world our own values our own measures our own senses of the beautiful and the good at that moment you get something that zora neale hurston anthropologist literary figure artist can read as characteristics of negro expression <laughs>